Welcome back. My name is Andy, and you're listening to the Poor Pearls Almanac. Following up on our discussion around black walnuts and native tree crops the past few weeks, we're joined by the director of the University of Tennessee's Tree Improvement Program, Dr. Scott Schlarbaum. Most people listening are probably surprised that any university offers a tree improvement program, and they'd even be more surprised to know that the program isn't designed specifically with future cash crops in mind, but rather protecting ecotype genetic diversity and developing the foundation for potential tree crops, such as acorns, black walnuts, butternuts, and more. Scott's a wealth of information, and I really enjoyed our talk, and I'm sure you will too. For more information about the University of Tennessee's Tree Improvement Program, check out the show's notes, and if you enjoy the episode, give us a review on iTunes. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Tell us a little bit about this program at the University of Tennessee that is really interesting. I think I'd love to see it kind of expanded at other schools. So tell us a little bit about it. The University of Tennessee's Tree Improvement Program started back in 1959. And in that era, in the 50s and then early 60s, there are a number of tree improvement programs uh, across the nation. The goal is, this is forestry, not horticultural tree or land, necessarily a landscape tree. At the time, there was, you know, of course, more, more money available, you know, from not only federal government, but also, also uh, from state governments. And it, they started to show that uh, you could actually genetically improve pines. And before that, some poplars and things like that. And as, uh, of course, our population grew, the demand increased. So, in the 1950s, industrial cooperatives, university slash industry cooperatives were formed using the expertise in breeding, testing, and things like that at the universities to start tree, uh, basically tree improvement programs and companies. And, and in the South, of course, that fo- focused on Southern Yellow Pine. There were three cooperatives that were formed in the early 50s, uh, the, the uh, Western Gulf Cooperative at Texas A&M University, NC State Cooperative, which is the cooperative that's dominant, dominant for the state of Tennessee. And then uh, the, the University of Florida had a, had a cooperative for some more deep south species like sand pines and things, things like that. Well, uh, you know, the demand was also for a number of other tree species. And of course, in those days, we were thinking more timber than any, anything else, timber pulp production. And so the universities uh, decided, well, we better get into this, the agricultural experiment station. So at the land-grant schools, they formed tree improvement programs. And at one time, back in the heydays in the, in the 1970s, there were, there were a number of tree improvement conferences in, in the East. There were the Lake States Tree Improvement Conference, the Central States Tree Improvement Conference, the Northeastern States Tree Improvement Conference, and the Southern Tree Improvement Conference. And uh, now today of those, the, the, the Southern Tree Improvement Conference is around, and then they've kind of merged all the Northern groups together. And that's, I think they either call that the Northern or, or, or North Central. I can't remember what they call that now. But yeah, after that first round of forest geneticists retired and forest tree breeders retired, uh, money had gotten tighter and tighter. And then, of course, we had the revolution of clonal propagation and plants, and then followed very closely by molecular biology, applications of molecular biology in plants. 
which also started to include forest trees. So when the land grant, and again, money was tighter, state money was tighter. A lot of the universities and the tree improvement programs were funded through the McIntyre-Stennis program, which is a federal formula fund funded program where they, uh, uh, if a state has X amount of uh, uh, acres in forests, they get X amount of dollars from the feds, uh, but they have to match those in different ways. So it's not just federal money turned over, the state has to kick in too. Unfortunately, the McIntyre Stennis uh, money stayed relatively stagnant compared to what everything else was going on. And so that hurt tree improvement program. So as money got tighter and tighter, and uh, I've, I've heard it expressed as there, well, the, there was a lot of administrative fatigue about renewing these very expensive and, and slow results, low, you know, uh, and not exciting results, tree improvement programs. And so in the 80s, all these uh, 70s and 80s, as the original uh, heads of the tree improvement programs retired at land grant schools, either close, well, they replaced those programs with molecular biologists, uh, clonal propagation specialists, other people that were interested in a little bit more basic science and, and the expense and the labor and everything associated with tree improvement programs proved too much. And they, they basically, most of them went by the, the wayside. And so we don't have many of those programs left. And the industrial cooperatives are still around. There's three in the South. There's one up in the uh, Lake States. Uh, and then there's one out on, on the West Coast. And then you move away from those and you have really very few uh, tree improvement programs. Now, there's programs that work, you know, work with forest molecular biology and things like that. They're, they're around. But actual, you know, you know, breeding and testing, field plots and all of that, there's not too much left of that in the, in the country. The University of Tennessee uh, started their program in 59, and they hired a Norwegian board forester named Ivan Thor. His name actually was Ivan Thor Bjornsson, and when he became an American citizen, he changed it to Thor. And, uh, and Thor was he was quite he was quite a character. And um, uh, he uh, uh, he he headed the program till 82. I came on in 84, and it was my option on whether to continue Professor Thor's uh, materials and tree improvement plantings and things like that, or um, basically uh, uh, work and do a lot more laboratory-oriented work. Um, I've got a mixed training. I'm trained in in in, in uh, tree improvement, but it was Great Plains tree improvement through a horticulture department, not anything like Southern Pine, and I worked with oaks then. And then uh, my, my PhD is actually in basic research uh, for the time. I was in cytogenetics working with um, uh, tree chromosomes and things like that. And so I'm kind of a hybrid. And, and I, I saw what was happening with a lot of the uh, more basic research at the time, and again, late 70s, early 80s, they were using anything like uh, Norway spruce. Well, we use that one that's planted on campus, you know, and that's not a way to really do it. You need to have an integrated program effort with tree improvement and basic research. And that's what I told UT that I would do when I came here. Long story short, $9,000 uh, startup fee and no lab technician, you're not going anywhere in the laboratory. So I would not let the tree improvement program go uh, because that is the future. 
And so we we hung in there and, and, and are still still going on. For anyone that wishing to read it, read this, there's a publication by Nick Wheeler and uh, Kim Steiner and Dave Neal and myself in the 2015 uh, volume of uh, Journal of Forestry, and it traces kind of the history and the rise and decline, and and then the integration of molecular biology and all that. So, so that's how we ended up still in business. Tennessee is a hardwood state. And so, unlike the Southern Pines program, I, I decided to emphasize hardwoods. And so now we're dominated with oak species. But also, as again, as civilization you know marches on, we're using more and more land for non-forest use. Urban sprawls just been terrible, you know, development and things like that. And so, the th species that were once com maybe common, maybe rare. Uh, uh, and in the state of Tennessee, not necessarily rare in the eastern United States, but in the state of Tennessee, those those habitats and those species are going away. I've felt for many years that the small stuff like pawpaws and crab apples and things like native species like that and, and plum are, are actually going away. And so uh, we not only uh, went with hardwoods, but we also worked with things that, that have problems. So that's that's how we ended up. Hardwoods are a lot more difficult to work with, with uh, than than pines. For example, we don't breed hardwoods, or, or at least oaks. We we've bred other hardwoods like uh, yellow poplar, but not but not oaks. You make a cross with you know an oak tree, you get one or two seeds. You know, for basically cross and pine, you can get like a pine cone with a hundred seeds. So it's it's a lot harder. Uh, the hardwood trees are just harder harder to work with overall. You know, we're moving relatively slow. What I decided, rather than just, just I looked at Tennessee forests, which are tremendously diverse, and that's why this state is so beautiful. Mm -hmm. We go all the way from the mountains where you have Fraser fir and, and, and red spruce up on the top of the mountains and high elevation, you know, kind of higher elevation species, all the way to bottomland hardwoods in West Tennessee. And you just have just a plethora of species to, to, to work with. And to, in Tennessee, we've got 35 commercially important hardwood species. Now, some, you know, are one much more important, you know, than others, but but that's, that's the challenge. And, and so what I decided, rather than to work on one species, and I was probably best fit to work on northern red oak or oaks in general, best trained for that, uh, I decided that we needed to take that first step toward domestication with a, a wide variety of species. And so we have, right now, I think we have seed orchards of about 28 species, uh, hardwood species. And and growing, uh, we're, we're we're constructing them, and we construct them in in different ways. And uh, some of those species are quite common, like white oak, northern red oak, uh, things like that. And others are, are rare. Like we have one of the rarest trees in the world, Harbison's hawthorn, here in Tennessee, only known from two trees until. Uh, Barry Hart, uh, NRCS uh, biologist, Mike Hansbro, another NRCS biologist, found a population in, in northwestern Tennessee. Uh, still, though, under 200 trees total. That's for the world, you know. 
And so, you know, we're actually getting involved with them and teaming up with them so we can bring those uh, representatives from those uh, those popul that population into a seed orchard situation where we can protect the genetic resources, but also generate seed to put put uh, reforce reforce more uh, more sites with with that species so we don't lose them. If you look at the history of civilization and you look at the history of natural resources as civilization developed, you start out with hunter gatherer. Uh, society where you don't you don't really have an impact on the land. You don't have many people use up locally what you do, and then you just move on to another spot. All the way up to the island of Manhattan, you used to have wild a lot of wild areas and all that. And now it's skyscrapers, you know, and you know. But the demand for the wood products and the other values that come from the forest, including the diversity, uh, are are still there. So what this domestication does it allows us to conserve the genetic resources of, of of the trees and basically have the seed sources so we can put back those trees and if we use genetic improvement better more productive trees on less acreage because that's the trend of, 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 of civilization that's the trend that's we're happening happening right here in the united states more people less land you, you you don't have a choice. You have to manage your land either more productively for natural re regeneration, or you have to go to domestication. And that's 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 essentially what we're doing here. You've brought up so many interesting points that I want to sure. ask about. Uh, the first thing is that, like, clearly, you from your experiences, you feel that this idea of natural diversity versus like this very isolationist genetic process to try to work with these trees is important. And you're also talking about this idea of domestication. I really want to kind of pull that thread a little bit of what you mean by domestication, because typically when we talk about domestication, I, most of the time we're talking about food crops, and I'm not getting the impression that's what you mean by this. Actually, it is. So it is. Uh, I don't know if you can... Yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah. Okay, it's, so you, it's just trees are larger, more expensive mm -hmm. to work with. They're not an annual crop. They're like humans. They mm -hmm. have, you know, a juvenile mature mature and maturity in terms of reproduction. You know, they're just harder mm -hmm. to work with and more way more expensive to work with. But that's really the same yeah. ideas behind that. Again, they were domesticated food and fruits and vegetables and things like that because the wild sources just were not meeting the demands of society. And so basically yeah. they went through selection, breeding, testing, and now, of course, they're integrating molecular biology and cloning and things like that into, into those processes. And so we're basically doing that. We're just years and years behind. Our hardwood, I'm talking not, you can have like poplar plantations for fiber and things like that. I'm, I'm talking like you're your mixed hardwood forest in, in Tennessee. So, so when we're talking about this idea of domestication, yeah. around like food crops, and as right. you're talking about that, like there's a very long history of humans doing that. Right. We've done that with walnuts, yeah. uh, apple, you know, all of our fruit trees. When you start talking with oaks, it's a really interesting animal to pick a specific one because of how varied that genetic diversity is, how easily they hybridize. And that's why, like, we actually, with the podcast, one thing we're working on is collecting improved seed from bur oak specifically, because low tannin, large nuts. 
And I think that could be like a really good starting point for trying to identify some of these species. So I guess like when you're talking about like with white oaks through this tree improvement program, how did you select for those trees? Like what, what is your thought process? Because obviously you're not, the, the work you're doing yeah. is about a, 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 on a timeline much longer than either of our yeah. lives. So kind of like, what, what does that trajectory look like? What are your thought processes in well, that? Well, uh, you know, as I said, the domestication, you know, whether you're dealing with a, a grain or a fruit, uh, the process is kind of the same you know, in, in forest trees, it just takes a lot longer time and it's a lot more, a lot more expensive for that. Um, what you do, you, 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 you should do anyway, you should t- take a look at, well, what is the, pu- remember, I, the public pays my salary. So you need to, you need to say what, you know, what does the public want? What can we anticipate that we're going to need more of as the population grows and the land base shrinks? And so you make some decisions along the, along those those lines. Now, the UT program is a little different in that we're holistic and in, in that we recognize that uh, something like post oak has absolutely no value as a, or very little value as a timber species, but it inhabits a really dry site. It inhabits, it, you know, it produces mast that wildlife will eat. So we we actually work with post oak and then some species like that. So we make a decision like that. Always you have to figure that, you know, you have finances uh, in back of it. So, you know, you can't do everything for all purposes. You know, so you have you do have mm-hmm. to make some, you know, choices there. For example, sassafras. Sassafras now has a non-native pest uh, disease that catches this laurel wilt that has devastated uh, red red bay down in the the uh, coastal Florida and the coastal states and things, and it gets off. It's got actually gets off on a wide range of things, but sassafras is one. We got it here in Tennessee. I should be basically conserving the genetic resources of sassafras, but I don't have the resources to do that, and it's a more difficult. Probably will be a more difficult species to. Uh, do that with we don't know anything really about sassafras which i will say i've been working with oaks for almost 50 years now and i don't feel that we know very much about oaks you move away from northern red oak which we probably know the most about um maybe white cherry bark which is a bottomland species a second and maybe a white oak and then you move away from those trees we don't know very much about these species at all mm. We don't know much about the genetic diversity. We don't, I mean, there's information out there, but it's just scratching the surface. And much less to read, you know, basically take that first step of domestication, plant that domestic that, that seed, and then develop a seedling that can be that can be planted and live out in the forest without spending a million dollars per per seedling. White oak's very challenging. You know, to produce something out of the nursery that a landowner can plant and walk away. We're not there yet. You know, and that's going to take that's going to take a lot of time, you know. But I make those choices in consideration of the products that came come out of these these tree species. I, I do not advocate, for example, plant planting um, pure white oak stands uh, you know, because you're going to run into disease and insect problems right away. We have some of those in our seed orchards that you don't find out in the, in the wild. And you go to a pure species kind of a, a type planting. Now, 
you might say, well, what about all these pine plantations? Well, pine plantations were developed when the U.S. Forest Service had a tremendous infrastructure of disease and, and cone and seed insect people and disease people behind all of that that dealt with a lot of those problems. You know, when you put lavalli pine or another pine species in a, into a pure stand, we don't. That infrastructure is almost gone now in this country, and we don't. And they never did work that much with hardwoods. If you do that, you're really taking a chance. But I would, I will say, in this state, people don't want to see that. People want to see, in general, people want to see their mixed hardwood forest, and and so that's that's what we were in, in where they extract so many values out of it. You know, aesthetic values, timber values. Uh, wildlife values for, for wildlife just for rec, let's go out camping or let's shoot that turkey. We try to manage the tree improvement program to meet a wide variety of those values. And we take a look at what's going on with some of these species like hemlock woolly adelgids, ruining our hemlock and killing our hemlocks back here. So we're conserving that. We're not breeding for resistance or anything. We're just conserving the genetic resources, uh, something like Harbison's hawthorn. And then strangely enough, and this is strange for me because I'm from Nebraska, where we had wild plums just lining the roadside, our plum populations, I think, are going away, particularly in West Tennessee. Uh, I was, I, uh, Jim Byford, who's a prominent wildlife biologist, and he was dean of the uh, UT, uh, University of Tennessee, Martin campus uh, ag school. Jim told me that about 20, 25 years ago, said that I asked him about wild plum. He says, well, we don't have hardly any of that out here. And and it's true. We're surveying now and we're actually cloning them um, uh, through rooted cuttings uh, to develop wild plum orchards. And it turns out Tennessee's got like six species. Some of them, you know, they're going away, you know, uh, Another example, and I really didn't know this, is, is we're into crab apples now. Southern crab apple and sweet crab apple, two different species, are in Tennessee, but they're going away too, I think. So we're bringing those in. Swamp white oak is another example. Good wildlife tree, probably can get some timber out of it, but good wildlife tree, um, you know, grow, it grows in a wetter habitat. And, uh, we the main part of the range is more north and west. We just have, you know, if you look at those distribution maps where you have the little dots instead of the whole range, mm. we just have those kind of dots and things. We've been surveying for that for years. I know we don't have over uh, uh, even 30 different locations in the state of Tennessee or swamp white oak. Oh, wow. Yeah, you know, so that species, I think some of that was cut too because there never was much of it, and some of it's cut. It's just like in a lot of these plant species, it, you know, nobody targeted them, but they lived in a certain habitat, and that habitat got used for something else by, by society. Or swamp white oak, I think they cut them. You know, they lived by water. Well, hmm. there are early settlers that came in, the European settlers, they, had, they lived by water. You got to have water, and so I think they cut them. So, but I don't think there was very many no. at all. Any, anyway. Well, yeah, I, it's really interesting to think about how you've got a, a myriad of factors. You know, the the expansion of you know urban and suburban spaces, yeah. uh, landscape management, 
the removal of like indigenous land management practices like fire. And then, you know, the the elephant in the room right now, I think for uh, anyone in this space is both invasives and climate change kind of doing their thing and really kind of amping up the pressure on these native species. Short term invasive species, much more devastating than climate change. Climate change will move things around. Some of these things like swamp white oak with the little dots on the map, they may go away, those populations. But invasives, these non-native pests are just, just awful. I teamed up in the early 90s with Faith, Faith Campbell. Faith is uh, probably the nation's expert on policy for non-native pests. And we, uh, if you look on the UT website, there's a, on non-native pests, there's a section on uh, that we have, we developed over a 25-year period of time, three reports called Fading Forest. Read those. And, and of course, the last one we put out was in 2015. They're, they're fair, fairly lengthy reports in integration of policy and biology. And you read those and, and our course, are, and I tell students this, are being transformed before our eyes. These non-native species, species pests are going to, our forest in 50 years is going to be very different uh, from them. And then you compile that with the, uh, you know, slower effects of climate change on that. You know, we still, you know, there's debate on, you know, how, what's it going to do? Is it going to make it hotter? Is it going to make it wetter? Is it, you know, all of that. And we still really know on that, certainly not down to the species level, not with biology yeah. data and, and, and biological data. And, and so, uh, uh, but you know, that's coming and that's going to, it's just going to make things. So we've got really, we've got the non-native pest, we've got the climate change, and then we have our society which is more and more and more people wanting more and more values out of what's left of the forested land. Yeah, and I, I, I like that you brought up the invasive um, insects, pathogens, because people, when you start talking about invasives, they'll say, like, here in New England where I live, autumn olive, like, yeah. at least birds eat the f- the fruit or whatever, or, you know, Japanese knotweed, like, it, it'll eventually get shaded out by a forest or whatever. And, like, okay, those might be true, but those aren't even really the big problems. You look at uh, the canopy species of an old uh, growth forest, and here in New England, almost every single one of them has a major invasive issue that is killing them, whether it's beech, and obviously American chestnut. You know, you, you start going through the list, and it's like a majority of the keystone species for our forests are under major attack. It's not, yeah, Japanese now has its problems, but like, that's not really the issue here. What I tell our students is my generation, the generation of Earth Day, Green Revolution, all that stuff, we failed. We have. I mean, there was warning, that we, but we let this go on. It's still going. You don't think so. Look, look for a champion in Congress on this. It's getting worse and worse. Trade doesn't help because we're getting a lot of these, uh, the, certainly the insects, and we can get even pathogens, you know, in, in solid wood packing material. You know, we've done, we've, we've warned, if you read Fading Force series, and before that, Faith Campbell has warned and warned and warned against that. We could solve that right away. You basically go to, you can make a composite pallet or packing case probably stronger than solid wood. And nothing can survive that that processing of the of the wood, and we just aren't doing that. Mm-hmm.
Hey, we're taking a quick break in the episode to remind you that you can get a whole lot more information from poorproles.com. On our website, we have access to our supplemental reader for the podcast, which provides more depth and context, as well as thorough citations for all of the stuff we talk about in the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which updates you about limited releases, such as various nursery stock that we sometimes sell through the Poor Proles website, as well as updates about new merch that we have. You can also support the show through that website, poorproles.com, where you have access to our Patreon and our Substack to get early releases for articles and episodes. Now, if you enjoy the show and are just looking for even more audio content, go check out Tomorrow Today, which just wrapped up season one, or tune into the Gastropocene, which is a project of myself and Dr. Aisha Khan to discuss the way our diets have driven the Anthropocene and what it looks like to use our diets for good. Now, back to the show. With the work you've been doing, you've been in this field for a long time. Um, to kind of go the opposite end, what what is what is the species that you're most hopeful for? Like, what what is it from all of this research that you're like, yeah, we have these problems, we're not addressing them, we don't have the right funding, but here are these like really things that are giving me hope for future generations in this area. I hope there's something. Please tell me there's something. I think I think the work that we're going to do with the harvest of hawthorn is going to certainly you know keep it in, in the forest and and the and uh, the plums and the uh, and the swamp white oak here in Tennessee, and and the, the the crab apple, two crab apple species that are native to Tennessee. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna do that, and um, you can do that with just oh, anything. It's just a matter of resources. You do, you know. And and I'd like to emphasize too. Well, you know, I'm talking. I talked UT Tree Improvement Program. We have basically collectively, I refer to all the seed orchards across the state as 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 the Tennessee seed orchard system. But that we just administer that. That depends on on many many cooperators. Uh, we have we in, in the next year or so we'll be all on all ten of our University of Tennessee's uh, ag research stations across the state. Uh, we have. Um, we have three seed orchard hubs. One's on the uh, Ames Ag Research uh, Station out in West Tennessee. The Middle Tennessee hub is on Jack Daniel Distillery Land. And we've been working with them for 25 years. And, and of course, they were initially interested in sugar maple because they filtered their rock whiskey through sugar maple charcoal, which makes it a Tennessee, Tennessee whiskey. But they've been very generous, and now we have 65 acres of seed orchards of a variety of species down there, including butternut, which is a federal species of mm-hmm. concern and a, on the state list of, of um, you know threatened and endangered. So you know they they've been and and the deal we have we provide the technical expertise. They give us a little bit of money, you know, for for a couple of our travel expenses, and then they maintain this and provide the land. So we got, you know, there's a good, that's a good example of a public-private, you know, partnership that has lasted again, you know, for, for 25 years and will last, I'm, I'm convinced, for many, many more years. And then in the East Tennessee, we have the Tennessee River Valley Authority um, that basically we had, they had a hardwood tree improvement program, the premier one in the country. They suspended in 82. But we pro- we we've got all the old records and plantings, and and we work with some of those still. And then they've infused new money where we're developing new orchards for East Tennessee on on TVA land. 
for people that would want to go to our website, I assume you're going to give the address out. Yep. If you go to our video channel, you can see uh, what we're doing with Swamp Swamp White Oak, which is really interesting. We're working with Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency. And uh, we, we basically planted a seed orchard on their land, on a wildlife management area, that they don't want a normal seed orchard management, which is basically a, a scorched earth policy under the, under the, under the, uh, the trees so we can pick up the acorns easy. They uh, basically uh, uh, want to continue to, to, to have that as a wildlife management area. So we can live with that. It's just uh, at certain times makes things a little more difficult, but we've got a system where now that land is being used for dual purpose, for the wildlife management area, and then also for um, production of uh, seed that goes to all of our seed goes to the East, uh, the Tennessee Department of Agriculture's East Tennessee State Nursery. And we're set up for that. So Professor Shore started cooperating with the uh, the Division of Forestry here in 66, and we've continued that as well. And of course, we can, we can uh, cooperate with TWRA, um, NRCS. We we uh, really you know, have cooperated with uh, you know the federal and the state agencies. So while we administer and and set direction generally for for this Tennessee seed orchard system, it's uh, it's really a cooperative effort, right down to the people that are assigned to mow those orchards and maintain those orchards. We can't live without those people. Yeah, it's a huge cooperative effort. You brought up the um, the TVA, which I know is really polarizing, depending on who you talk oh, to sure. in Tennessee. Yeah, but uh, that despite all of the the challenges people have with it, one of the most important things, in my opinion, is the work that they've done in the reforestry. Sp- like space. Um, and I know we email back and forth about kind of how that evolved a bit. And from the the John Hershey era to kind of the second wave of the TVA forestry project, I don't know if you could speak a little bit about like what those genetics were and why they were important for that, that the ones that you guys started working from. Yeah, well, uh, TVA uh, had two primary uh, tree kind of programs. One was started back in the 30s, and lasted into the 40s, which they called the tree crops program. And that was uh, really a horticultural program with tree species. And what they wanted to do was to provide a cash crop to ten- Tennessee River Valley residents, which of course many were very poor, and they wanted to put cash into their hands, you know, you know, quickly. So they basically uh, uh, test uh, 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 gathered together black walnut cultivars for nut productions, uh, all kinds of things like that. And then even went overseas and, and got a Chinese dates, which is called juju. Juju bees. Have you ever eaten one? I have not, well, actually. And, uh, I don't know. To me, they taste like cardboard, but but I haven't had one that's been preserved <laughs> like a date. But uh, they even had have pulled in some of those trees. And then, then an interesting tree... Uh, uh, that uh, they also pulled in, and they have just one example was mandarin melonberry. Awesome. Oh, I've seen the, I've seen that. Uh, someone posted about that. Yeah, before. yeah, that. yeah. That's that's a good tasting fruit. <laughs> so it's about the size of a raspberry, but it has kind of it's sweet, but not overly sweet, and has a, a melon aftertaste. So they they had those programs, and then TBA set up. People don't understand this, but TBA set up to take that initial step and then spin it off. And so 
you know, they after a few years, you know, a couple of 20 years or so, they basically moved on from the tree crops program. So then the next big wave, of course, the TBA was very cognizant of what was going on with the Southern Yellow Pine tree uh, industrial cooperatives and then all the tree improvement programs popping up. And they had the foresight to basically take that step into pines, but also, strangely enough, into hardwoods in a pretty big way. And they uh, selected trees, uh, grafted them, brought those into common locations. They tested. They put out the first test of white oak. And um, the second major round of testing of, um, of um, northern red oak. And, uh, and then the only testing of chestnut oak. And so they were working with species like that. But again, the steam kind of went out of that in the 70s. And by 82, TVA had decided to suspend those programs. But they worked closely with the state of Tennessee when the state of Tennessee had a tree improvement program and, and with us as well. So that continues on. The nation's largest, the northern largest oak orchard, it's northern red oak, is an old TBA uh, genetic test that's up in north northeastern Tennessee on the uh, northern end of the Cherokee National Forest, and we manage that for the the Cherokee National uh, for the southern region is what we do, and uh, work hand in hand with the Forest Service uh, uh, on that. So it's 16 acres in size, and the yields of acorns now are in tons. I've been working at that. I started working at that orchard in 1990. Although I visited it before then and uh, in 85, and then uh, we took over the management in the late 90s uh, of it. So long time. And I have to say this, the Forest Service Seed Orchard Manager was a gentleman named Ken Prophet. He retired from the Forest Service in, in, in 2005. And so we hired him back as a contractor. So Ken, Ken's 77, he's the seed orchard manager. Uh, uh, operational manager, and 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 uh, he's up there right now today picking up acorns. The reforestation. That name sounds so yeah. familiar. Um, I'm trying to figure out why. I think I'm not sure if maybe he also is in like the NNGA or something. His name's very yeah, familiar. Yeah, I've worked together now for 33 years, so so that's that's kind of nice. That's that's a perk. Yeah, I mean, the, having that resource is amazing. You're talking about like this genetic diversity. What exactly are you hoping to get out of it for future? You know, you're harvesting these tons of acorns. Like, what what is the the goal of this? Well, they, you basically we take them to the nurse. Uh, well, we harvest them. We keep them separate by pedigree, and we create a blend of a genetically diverse blend. And then they're growing uh, for uh, they're growing for the state of Tennessee, but they're also growing for the U.S. Forest Service for re- reforestation. So oaks, uh, what what we have found is that oaks, um, well, they produce different levels of acorns. Some just rain acorns down, and then some don't. And what we find with oaks is that uh, uh, some some produce a lot of acorns and some don't. And so if you, in this 16-acre seed orchard, that we call the Watauga seed orchard, is uh, 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 I could meet Forest Service demand for the entire region with 10 trees. 10 trees is not enough diversity. So basically, we do we do blends of seed uh, to ensure the uh, genetic diversity of them. So that's, that's uh, you know, uh, 
And we're still learning about how to manage that orchard and, and meet different challenges that comes along the way, including disease challenges. So some of the goal is to try to level out some of those that mass production or to at least try to winnow the the selection of red oaks to more high producing nut uh, acorns or trees? Well, no, you don't want to do that because like I said, you know, if I wanted to do that, I'd cut down everything except for 10 trees and we'd meet the demand and that's too low genetic diversity. In your tree improvement programs, we're very cognizant of genetic diversity. We don't want something that's really, really narrow. We try to put, we want to, we want a tree that'll perform, but we try to put ensure that it has a broad enough genetic background to withstand mm-hmm. pest, climate, you know, climate, yeah. I won't say climate change, but climate fluctuations, and, and because it has to live for a long time. Particularly, if you're looking at oaks, you know, you've got to live for probably 60 years before you get to start harvesting for timber, 50, 60 years or, or so. So you you need that broad genetic diversity that's still in them. And, and the reason I blend acorns from this uh, the Watauga orchard is that uh, if I just use 10 tr- or if I just combine the low producers in with the big producers, they get swamped. And so we ensure that the Forest Service receives a uh, nice blend of seed. But we're just learning this stuff. I mean, uh, you know, yeah. that's the, like I say, that's the largest. Um, and I don't know if it's the oldest, but it's very close if it's not. Uh, seed orchard in the uh, oak seed orchard in the United United States, and we're 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 learning learning tons about it. You know the TVA program, even though they suspended in '82, they still their materials that we we still use their materials in in different ways, and so um, it still carries on, even though TVA you know doesn't operate a tree improvement program. But then 2015. They started making resources available to us to start new plantings, including a genetic test uh, of the trees that came from the Watauga orchard. So kind of a second generation planting. And so we're, we're, we're doing that, you know, so TVA, you know, we're working hand in hand with them on, on, on things. Awesome. Now, I want to ask about the Jack Daniels distillery um, project, too. Uh, you brought up that you're working with butternuts there. I know you're also working with black walnuts and bald cypress, so uh, I'm really interested why those trees were chosen, given that, like you said, their bigger concern was that sugar maple. Okay, yeah. Well, that was that was a, a this started back in in '98. The distillery contacted us, and they said we may we think we might have a problem with our sugar maple supply. And I'll say this about Jack Daniel's Distillery: they are they are. Very, very, and of course, they're uh, 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 owned by Brown Foreman com- Company out of Louisville. They, they are very, very environmentally conscious company, and they, if they, and of course, they're good business people too. So, if they have a product that's critical to their production of whiskey, say sugar maple, or another product, let's say water, the water. What you know the the story that the water comes out of this cave that's true, you know I mean they have boy they map they will map their water they do all kinds of things with water, anything threatens those they don't wait until they have a problem they wait they they do something before so they uh, at the time were harvest uh, they weren't harvesting sugar maple they were buying sugar maple and making their own sugar maple charcoal to mellow the whiskey. 
And they thought, well, we might have kind of a local problem. So we looked at the inventory, one of our professors, John Rennie, and he said, oh, you may or may not have a problem. We told him that. And I said, well, we want to do something anyway. And I said, well, we don't have a sugar maple orchard in the state of Tennessee. TVA did some work on it back in the 50s, and that's been it. And so we basically say, okay, we've got this piece of land. Well, they had a big piece of land, and and it's 27 acres, I think it is. And I you know, looked at it, and I said, well, you know, we don't need all of this in sugar maple. Uh, you know, um, I tell you what, you guys use white oak for, as barrels, and, uh, for barrels. And, and right away, the general manager, his name was Tommy Bean, he said, and Doug Clark he, was uh, another manager that was out there, too. And he said, right, right, well, that's not us. You know, that's a cooperage. We don't, we don't do that. I said, yeah, but white oak's a good tree. And I said, and you got a lot. Central Tennessee is walnut country and black walnut, butternut traditionally, a long, long time ago. And I said, you know, black walnut's a good tree, too. So from that start, we uh, and the, all those would fit in that 127-acre property. And they said, okay. And so um, uh, from that start, and I will say this is a handshake deal, still is. But I told them, I said, you understand, if you commit to this, you're not committing for the next five years. You're going to give me a little money up front, but I'm going to use that money, you know, and, and it'll be gone. You're committing for decades, decades. here. I just want you to understand that. And they said, oh, that's, that's okay, we'll do it. So we shook hands. And, and we've gone on from there, and the distillery, they have, you know, warehouses and land where they, they can't use it for anything else, uh, have allowed us to expand the orchard system. And now we're, we've got, I think we've got 10 or 11 species and counting. We're adding some, too. We're still adding to, to all of that, fitting them into the land. And we, we ended up with 65 acres of, of seed orchards, including butternut. Oh, wow. It's awesome. And and now, uh, well, when we started this, we didn't know anything about sugar maple. And so so um, the Vermont foresters told us, well, grows real slow. It'll be 25 years to reproductive maturation. Okay. And so we planted it, and our stuff grew great. So I thought we'd have seed production 10, 12, 15 years. And no. Nope. This year, 25 years to date, was the first year that we had widespread production in the orchard. So you have 25 years of investment there for land, yeah. maintenance, put a fence around it, things like that, that uh, you have to be willing to make that investment before you get fruition. With the white oak orchard, we're taking now crops to the East Tennessee State Nursery, the first we had we had production, but the first big production year where I felt, well, this is commercial scale was in 2021, which is 20 years after we planted the orchard. Yeah, and now those those black walnuts and butternuts, uh, I know you said the butternuts were critically endangered. Are you doing any specific work with the genetics, or was it just uh, no, bulk I, buy black walnuts, throw yeah, them in? Yeah, we can, uh, the uh, black walnuts are producing. That's a small, I call it, it's an orchard, but it's, we've got the genetics on, but it's really a seed production orchard. And um, uh, and so you know, that, and then the butternut's much younger. You know, it's it it'll be years before it it produces. You know, but we can't 
there's another thing. I really we put a lot of effort in butternut. I'll say twenty years ago for about ten, ten to fifteen years. But I basically decided the cost of breeding and real intensive work with any tree species, whether it had a pest problem or not, was so extensive that I I I would have to sacrifice broadening the effort to different species, taking that first step to domestication. And so I decided to, to go the latter route. I thought, in retrospect, if I can conserve the genetic resources on things that have problems like butternut, you know, if we can get seed orchards and genetic improvements started in some of the other species, then that's probably a better contribution to the state of Tennessee than concentrating on just one species. And of course, you know, here again, you know, you take the risk when you do something that's going to extend beyond your career that may, you may or may not be wasting your time. Mm. I, I saw the other tree improvement programs fail and nothing come out of them. In the 1990s, I decided I was going to take a, a rapid approach to, to, at the very least, we might not have, in my career, genetic improvement, but we're going to have the seed orchards there. And I took a different approach, too. I, I used, we basically call Tennessee the three states of Tennessee. We have three major physiographic, you know, different regions in Tennessee. And so our program is constructed with local genotypes from each one of those three states of Tennessee. So the hub at the, at Ames Ag Research and, and, and uh, Education Center, those are West Tennessee genotypes. Jack Daniels, Middle Tennessee genotype. East Tennessee TVA, those are Eastern Tennessee genotypes. So eventually our state nursery will end up with seed that from each three of those regions. Now, I'm having trouble with genetic diversity in, in um, uh, swamp white oak. Uh, our one orchard, uh, our orchard in East Tennessee bore two years ago, and we had some albino seedlings and things like that. And that's a sign that you've got inbreeding depression. You don't have enough diversity there. And so unless we can find some more, and I've got a grad student that's working on that right now, Jesse Parker, who's working with Laura Thompson, who's USGS scientist, and they're trying to develop a predictive model. We actually did this 20-some years ago with Butternut uh, to locate more of the diversity. But I may have just an all-Tennessee an old Tennessee orchard of swamp white oak. I'm thinking maybe also of, of southern crab apple and 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 sweet crab apple as well. So that those that's evolving. <laughs> so, yeah. So you got your hands in a lot of different pots with the hope that at least some of them will continue on. They might not all. Well, but... we'll see. I mean, you know, I, uh, I you know, I, it's uh, it's going to be, you know, up to UT administration and, of course, the state to see, you know, is is this effort worthwhile and all of that. Um, I think I think the answer, of course, is yes. And the next person will not have to take that first step to domestication, which it's very it's not career friendly. I will tell you that. And it's very hard. It's very expensive. And you're not going to see the fruitions of your, your labor. But if you're in forestry, you better accept that from day one. Doesn't mean the work isn't important. Someone needs to do it. Someone has to take those first steps. And and that's your role. Yeah. And that's that's important. Scott, so 
for folks that are listening, I know you guys have an Instagram page plus the U, U Tennessee website. And uh, Instagram, I think, is and Facebook. Uh, I know it's UT Tip on Instagram, so it's U T T I P. Well, I if you just enter UT Tree Improvement Program, you should see all that pop up on a yeah. Google Google search. The Facebook and Instagram are basically are what we're doing right now. I mean what we're doing kind of kind of a current events update and then and then yeah. the website is is more i guess i'd call it stable we don't make frequent changes to that we are adding one change in that uh, american forest um uh, has which is the actually is the american forestry association which is the oldest forestry association in the nation formed back in the late 1800s they have put up some money for us to start a uh, with the tennessee division of forestry for us to start a wild seed for seed collection network where we go out and locate native trees collect those seed and that seed goes to the state nursery so we've got locally adapted stuff going to the state nursery and as a stopgap to uh, until the uh, seed orchards start to bear enough to, to meet meet demand. I mean, so we've got that project uh, uh, going on. A very fine young woman, Erin Victorson, is is heading up that project for us, and um, she's going to be out collecting acorns this week. Nice. So for folks that are listening, can they contribute seed? Do it, like if they live in Tennessee, is there anything they can do to like get involved? Yeah. If, if, uh, we have a list of species and uh, we just put a new blurb on the website on this, but we haven't flushed it out yet because we're waiting for, this is the first year uh, and we're waiting for, get some good photos of Aaron, you know, collecting seed and all of that. We're feeling, feeling kind of feeling our way through that. And certainly, you know, uh, if they go to the face, Facebook site and indicate interest, you know, in participating, we're looking for native trees, generally large trees, and then permission for, for us or uh, one of the state agencies to collect seed underneath that trees to take to the to East Tennessee State Nursery for growing. Awesome. It, it, you know, and again, this this program's stopgap program, tell the orchards come in, which maybe you know, I mean, we're looking at 20 some years, you know, probably for the newer ones that we're, we're putting together. So, you know, uh, you know, these things hopefully will be around for a long time. We get things right in our nursery, you know, where we're not having to buy seed from, a, you know, anywhere. We get basically Tennessee seed that's locally adapted. And then as it comes from some of our orchards, it'll be genetically approved. That's awesome. Scott, this has been really interesting. I, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing how this evolves over the next decades. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. This has been great. You bet. Thanks, Andy.